Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel. As we at last conclude chapter 16, which we began a couple weeks ago. So we will read Ezekiel 16 from verses 44 to 63, the last one. So Ezekiel 16 from 44 until the end. This is a conclusion of a long and difficult chapter to read for how it convicts, but also there's great hope in realizing that if you have lost everything, you have everything in God through Jesus. Ezekiel 16, 44 to 53. Receive and hear this with love and with hope. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thus says the Lord. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. And your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it, Samaria has not committed half of your sins. You have committed more abominations than they have and made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sister appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them as for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. 
For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account on the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I, when I atone for you for all that you have done declares the Lord God. You wake up in the middle of the night, shuffle down the hall to the bathroom, you stumble in, flick on the light, and you look at the mirror at the medicine cabinet, and a stranger is standing there. He's staring right at you, as surprised to see you as you are to see him. You scream for help and panic, only to realize the stranger is screaming back at you in equal force in the same frightening tone. Medicine literature defines mirror image agnosia as a condition where people have a, quote, specific difficulty in identifying their own reflected images in the mirror and mistake them as strangers, gods, or enemies and behave appropriately. One study with people who have with that condition tells us the story of T.H., anonymous patient, let's call him Ted. Ted says the article, Describe his reflection as a person who had described his reflection as a per, as a person who was a dead ringer for himself. Tad frequently attempted to talk to the person and said that as the person never replied, he could only assume he was there was something wrong with his voice or his tongue. When asked what he thought the person's personality was like, Tad replied that the person had not given him any reason to be suspicious. Asked where the person lived, Tad said he lived in an apartment adjoining Tad's own apartment, although there was no apartment on that block of land, says the study. If the thought of looking in the mirror and seeing a dead ringer of yourself staring back at you sounds funny, or maybe terrifying, I have bad news for you this morning. In a certain way, spiritual mirror image agnosia could very well have been the condition or specifically the sin of God's people in Ezekiel 16. They complain about God and about their lives because they could barely understand who they were and what they had done, they did not recognize themselves. So for 63 verses, God has been showing them this ugly image of adultery, of prostitution, of spiritual and marital infidelity in an attempt to break through this completely misconstrued image they had 
of themselves. This morning, we reach the long and winding, the end of the long and winding road of Ezekiel 16, and we are confronted one last time by our own misconceptions about ourselves and about God. One last time, God will put an uncomfortably accurate mirror before us so we can understand who we are and in turn recognize our need of Him. Today, as we conclude this chapter, we will see a reflection in the Bible one more time, and in doing so, we will hopefully find the love, the deep, deep love of God that never lets us go. In summary, we will see today that the more we understand who we are, the more we see our need for Jesus. Again, that's the main point of this passage and of this entire chapter, so to speak. The more we understand who we are, the more we see our need for Jesus. We'll see that in three points this morning. And the first one is the bad, bad news that we, do not, that we often do not realize how bad we are. This is the bad, bad news for you this morning. We often do not realize how bad we are. Ezekiel 16, friends, what a ride. Through graphic, bothersome, and sometimes even repulsive language, the prophet has been recalling the, the story and the history of Israel, of Jerusalem, for themselves, as told by God's perspective. After a promising start a couple weeks ago, when we saw that God rescued Jerusalem, baby Jerusalem, from death at birth, and made her his wife and his queen, we saw in the past weeks that, one, she squandered all of that, all that God had given her in search of her own well-being apart from God, committing all kinds of atrocities in the meantime. And two, that her punishment was her own crime. She wanted to live far from God and near to strangers, so God withdrew his hand and brought the strangers to her walls to take her apart and go away carrying her riches. She wanted to live with them. God gave them for her to live with. And as, as I said before, remember, Ezekiel's goal with this shock and awe message is to expose and condemn God's people's self-reliance so they will turn their hearts back to their creator. Today, we arrive at the end of Jerusalem's tale, and then God brings back the genealogy tree imagery that he used before in the chapter to remind Jerusalem of who she is and to shock his readers one more time. First, he reminds them of their pagan origins, as we've seen before, and then mentions this common proverb like mother, like daughter, as if to say, when all is said is done, People will look at you and they will only conclude that like the Amorite mother, like Israelite daughter. Jerusalem's life to this point caused and will, call, will cause onlookers to think that she was never different or even better than the pagan peoples she came from. 
And then God introduces two new characters to, the, to Jerusalem's unholy biography, older sister Samaria and younger sister Sodom. Those, of course, as Jerusalem is, are two cities and they represent two peoples. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, representing those people, the ten tribes. And Sodom was, at this point in history, the ancient memory of a small group of township, townships in Judah's southern borders. Older and younger here relate more to their size. Samaria was bigger. Sodom was way smaller. The language of daughters mean like probably the cities around them. So Samaria is the big city and her daughters, the cities in that kingdom. Same for Sodom. And the prophet is saying that Jerusalem is worse than them. Can you imagine that being said of you? How dare you? An Israelite could have yelled to Ezekiel in the middle of his preaching, compare us with Samaria and her false temples, her golden calves. Are you, are, are you really saying we are worse than Sodomites? Really? Yes. God is saying that his people are worse than people whose abominations reverberate even to this day when we think of the words in English that we derive from their name. Those were two terrible groups of people indeed. Yet as you look at the accusations against them, you see why God would say that these three cities seem to have been cut from the same cloth. Jerusalem always looked at northern Samaria and her theology with some suspicion with their new temples and their new golden calves. Yet after all that we have seen in Ezekiel about Jerusalem's secret idols placed even inside the temple in Jerusalem, it's easy for us to agree with verse 51 that Samaria has not committed half of the sins of Jerusalem. Then, as a reminder in verses 49 and 50, he talks about the sins of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and a prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Social, cultural, sexual depravity in the eyes of the Lord, which if you have been tracking through chapter 16, sounds a lot like Jerusalem. Right? By Jerusalem's loathing for her husband, Yahweh, and for her children whom she sacrificed to idols, we can only conclude, looking at what she does, that she is, like her mother, another pagan nation. Idolatry and child sacrifice seemed to run in the family. The dead ringer Jerusalem sees in the mirror has all the traits of Samaria and Sodom. And then it gets worse. Verse 52, Bear your disgrace, God tells her, for you have made your, sister, your sisters appear righteous. 
Jerusalem was so evil, so vile, that she made Samaria and Sodom look good in comparison. Jerusalem's idolatrous, corrupt actions betrayed a stronger connection to the pagans around her than she ever had with the God of their covenant. And at this point, we stop, we look at this text, and the question it asks of us this morning, we should not be a surprise for you after all the previous 50 or so verses, is are we any better than that? Are we waging war against this world and its values? To use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians with the weapons that the world itself gives to us? Are we fighting the hatred this world has for Jesus with more hatred? Are we known in this world, by this world, as a sanctuary for the lost and the sick, as an overflow of the grace, mercy, and peace that we receive from Jesus Christ our Lord? Or are we, the church, just another institution playing power games in society with worldly weapons of political power, cultural relevance? When people outside look at the church, do they see something different or do they see more of the same? Sisters and brothers, the temptations Jerusalem fell to are the same we face today. And if we fall to them, we should not be surprised to see a worldly dad ringer staring back at us when we look at the mirror. Still, as there always is in the Word of God, there is good news for sons and daughters of Hittites and Amorites. God promises, as you've seen in this chapter as we read it, restoration, even if it comes with a twist, which we'll see in our second point this morning. We see the bad good news for us this morning is that God saves bad people. The bad good news for us from this text is that God saves bad people. We see that in verses 53 through 58. Verse 53 begins with something that sounds like great news. God promises to restore Samaria, Sodom, and Jerusalem. Yet the celebratory tone has a bitter aftertaste. Because the goal of this family restoration, as we see in verse 54, is that Jerusalem may bear her disgrace and be ashamed of all that she has done, becoming a consolation to her sisters. And as we look at this and sounds like great news, I think it wouldn't be hard to imagine how the promise of restoration for Sodom, let alone Samaria, would be pretty shocking to the original hearers of Ezekiel. Will God restore the good standing of Sodom? That Sodom, the actual city of Sodom, Genesis 19, utterly destroyed with fire from heaven? 
Is God going to restore her? What Ezekiel describes here with these three sisters, I should remind you, is the composition of the people that lived in the land of Israel. Samaria, Jerusalem, and Sodom represent the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south, and in a way, the remaining Canaanite population that lived within their borders that the people of God were never able to expel from the land as they were told to. So what God is promising here is a complete restoration of these people, all of them. Why would that bring shame to Jerusalem then? Why he keeps saying that it will bring her shame? Verses 56 and 58 tells us that she always saw her sisters with pride and with contempt. She always thought she was better than them until her wickedness was exposed as we see in this chapter, as we see that the Babylonians did to them. She always thought she was better, but to her dismay, it was quite the contrary. She made even the Philistines embarrassed of their lewd behavior. Verse 57, she is way, way, way worse than her sister's. So what God is saying here that brings shame to them is that he will save even Jerusalem, the worst sister of the bunch. It's the ultimate twist of the knife of any remaining pride in the people's hearts. He's saying that if he could restore even wicked Jerusalem, if he could clean up the toxic garbage dump that Jerusalem has become, Restoring Sodom and Samaria would be like doing the dishes in comparison. And this, friends, is the punch in the gut that Ezekiel has been simmering for almost 60 verses and now he finally delivers. Jerusalem needs to see who she is so she can see what God does for her. And again, going back to our main point, this is what I wanted to show you about who we are. Because friends, being here today, this morning, most of us, with the appearance of having it all together, at a historic church, at a historic denomination, does not make us any better than anyone else let alone it earns God's favor for us. And I'll, back, I'll go back to this point because this is the point of the entire chapter. If we think we do not need God because we can fend for ourselves, or if we believe that God loves us because we are so great, we will never see, we will never see the need for Jesus and for the salvation that he brings to this world. At the very least, we will take it for granted. Why would Jesus not want to hang out with people so great as we are, we might think? At this point, we would do well to remember Pastor Larry's sermon on Mark 2 a while ago, 
It almost makes it seem like there was just one person writing the entire Bible. To see our need for Jesus and to grasp and to hold fast to His salvation, grace, and love, we need to remember and to embody the words of Jesus to the people of His time who thought they were doing better than everyone else. At some point in Mark 2, we read this, And the scribes of the Pharisees said to His disciples, Why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came, says Jesus, not to call the righteous, but sinners. In a way, this is what Ezekiel is telling Jerusalem. And I ask, have you forgotten that sermon already just a couple weeks? Have you forgot that message? I'm pretty sure when Larry preached this, it was not the first time you, read, you, you heard this. And have you forgotten already? Well, if you have, then I have great news for you today. Our final point this morning, we'll see the good, good news for us is that God remembers the good, good news for us this morning that you should take home with you in your heart is that God remembers. We see that in the, first, the last five verses, 59 through 63. In its parting words, chapter 16 brings us some of the most remarkable and remarkably, remarkably comforting words we could hear on a Sunday morning like this. After weeks of seeing our pride and seemingly good impressions, self-good impressions, being beaten to a bloody pulp by Ezekiel's rhetorical club. Yes, verse 59, God will discipline his people by letting them taste what they were looking for, looking for this life away from him. Yet, verse 60, yet, Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, he adds. At this point, you might have noticed that the theme of remembering appears often throughout the whole chapter. He keeps talking, God keeps talking about remembering. After tell, telling Jerusalem of her origins that he, she had forgotten, God continually tells her that she has not remembered what he did for her. And that was which led her to this lifetime of misery, pain, and suffering they're about to embark on. So at the end of Jerusalem's biography, the good news is that the solution, the way back, the relief, the comfort, the hope for better days and longing for rest does not depend. He has never depended on them remembering. It does not depend on them remembering harder because they won't. Because we don't. God makes it very clear for us at the end of this chapter that the reunion of the bride, divine bridegroom Savior with, her, with his long lost bride happens because he remembers her. 
then, and only then, they will remember and know, verse 62, that I am the Lord. They will remember that I am who I am is her only hope of security and satisfaction in this world and in the world to come. In the words of commentator Margaret Odell, by reestablishing the covenant, Yahweh definitely affirms that he is, always has been, and always will be faithful to Jerusalem. His love for her never changed. She was the one who strayed, not him. And this is why there's this at first confusing language in verse 63 about not opening her, opening her mouth again. Because you see, and I hinted to the, about this in the, in the, throughout this chapter, the people were ashamed of God because he promised to be so powerful, yet he let them fall to the hands of the Babylonians. So they were opening their mouths to complain. And Ezekiel was showing them that they never had any reason to be ashamed of him. And when he's finished, they will never feel ashamed of him again. Margaret Odell again. Jerusalem does need to piece together the shards of her past and to see that she is responsible for her destruction. But she adds, but if she no longer opens her mouth in shame, it's because Yahweh renewed presence precludes any future need for such complaints. And we see this future, future eternal aspect in verse 60. I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. The promised restoration seems a lot like chapter 16. It never ends. Why? Look at the very last sentence of this chapter. The reunion between God and His people is only made possible because He will atone. He will clean up after the mess His people left behind. God's answer to Jerusalem's idolatry and pride that led to her bloodshed is the shedding of His own blood. At the cross, in Mount Calvary, idolatry and pride and self-reliance were condemned in Christ through His death so that His people could rise to new life in Him, in His resurrection. Only because of that His people now can live in constant remembrance. Doing this in remembrance of me as it's written in that table. Eating of his body, drinking of his blood as he himself told us to. And we do that. We partake of him and we are united to him in his death and his resurrection. To do that is to remember is to do what this chapter tells us to, is to remember who we were once in shame, yes, but also what He did for us 
and who we are now in Him. Only then, only when we're united to Him and we have this remembrance of the past that changes the way we live in the present, we can live in joyful gratitude. Even to the point of imitating Him in sacrificing our lives for those in need. Unlike what the people of Samaria, of Sodom, and of Jerusalem were doing. Remembering in Scripture, someone once said, is never simply a mental exercise, but one that issues, that issues in a particular course of action based on the truth remembered. To remember is to do, and to remember Him is to do, what he, to do for others what He did for us. So today, remember, whether you are Christ-believing Christian or if you have never heard anything I said today before, remember that you are only made right before a God through Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, He remembered you. If He could remember His people languishing in the Babylonian exile, He can remember you today. As a wise man once said, every person therefore in coming to the knowledge of himself is not only urged to seek God, but is also led by the hand to find Him. So let me conclude, finally, verse chapter, six, fifth, chapter 16 to you this morning. Remem- remind you, friends, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who holds the universe in His hands, having set the record straight and curing our spiritual mirror image agnosia, is now stretching his hand to you to lead you back to your God. And his invitation is the same yesterday, today, and until he returns. Come. Live. Remember. Let us pray. Most holy and most merciful God, the strength of the weak, the rest of the weary, the comfort of the sorrowful, the savior of the sinful, and the refuge of your children in every time of need, hear us while we pray for your help in all the circumstances and experiences of our lives. When our hearts are growing cold and dead and we are losing our vision of your face, help us, O God. Cause us to see, to remember, and to live for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray and we say together, Amen.